Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. I am Donna Miller, the Executive Coordinator of the CLSA. Our guest this week was the 2015 Rule of Law Award recipient. She currently serves as the Executive Director of the Resource Center for Religious Institutes in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm very happy to welcome Sister Sharon Ewart to our podcast today. Hi, Sister Sharon. Hi, Donna. Thank you for the invitation. It's nice to be with you. You've got so much in your background, and I I want us to start off first with if you can just share with you, our listeners how you came to study canon law. Well, it was a very interesting um, dynamic. I'm not sure I even knew what canon law was until I began to uh, work with the Archdiocese of, of Baltimore in the late 70s. And I, I became their director of research and planning. And in that role, we were uh, working with the archbishop to develop consultative structures in the diocese. And I said to him one day, I said, Archbishop, you know, I, I think I'd like to know a little bit about canon law because so much of what we're doing here has some implications and, and some base in canon law. He said, well, would you like to study? And I said, well, I don't know because I don't know if I would like it. So he said, all right, I'll send you to the seminary and you take a couple of courses there and then we'll see. So I did. I took uh, two courses at the seminary in Baltimore, and I liked it. So he said, well, why don't we uh, send you to school part-time? So I started at Catholic U on, on a part-time basis for the first year, well, very part-time for the first year. And then um, I I went full-time after that uh, with my through my community and through the archdiocese. Um, and it was just an amazing experience because we began in 1984, right after the promulgation of the code. Our class had 47 people in it, all of most of whom were priests. There were five women and and most of the priests were there because the code came out and the you know finally came out. And the bishop said, I need I need to send you. In fact, two of them had just been ordained in June and were there in August to study canon law. So there was some there was so much excitement about the law. The, and and the other thing was we had an outstanding faculty at the time. They had many of them had been involved in in the revision process in reviewing this uh, the schemas and sending in um, uh, responses for the bishops and and for the university. So there, there was just an amazing interest in the law. A lot of writing was happening, a lot of analyzing, a lot of uh, uh, research for ways to apply the law pastorally in throughout the church. So it was an amazing, amazing experience. And it was through those first couple of years that I decided to, uh, and, and, and with my community, to stay for the doctorate. And, um, I, you know, from there, I, I would have to say I hadn't quite finished my writing and I was invited my first ministry after Baltimore then was I was invited to um, apply for a position or be considered for a position at the bishops conference in research and planning 
and I, I prayed about it and I, you know, and discerned and sought help because I thought, you know, I, I'm just studying canon law. I don't know that I want to go in back into research and planning, but I really learned from that experience that God puts us in places for reasons that we don't have any idea. So um, I was appointed to the job in late 87 and I finished my defense in September of 88. So I worked part time for that those, you know, that period of time and then went full time. And in 89, I was appointed associate general secretary. But I, this this experience relates to something that, you know, I want to share that I think is really important for newer canon lawyers, too. When I started working there, I mean, it was known I had just completed a doctorate in canon law and I was doing planning. But the, the associate general secretary at the time that was a canon lawyer was Monsignor Don Heinchel, who was one of the first executive coordinators of the Canon Law Society. He became a mentor for me uh, while I was doing the planning in the beginning. And what he did, he said, I know you're a new Canon lawyer and you don't know where to begin. And I, I said, that's right. And so he said, why don't we work together? So when he got requests from bishops for questions to be resolved or situations that they wanted some advice on, he would give it to me and he'd say, think about this, write an opinion, and we'll talk about it. And that's how I learned so much about, about what was happening um, in, the, in the dioceses, but I also learned how to work with bishops. Um, and that was a great, it was a great gift that carried me up until the present day in many ways. So, um, and all of that time, uh, that I was at the conference and until 2001, I was involved in the CLSA and I was teaching at Catholic University um, in the summers and also in the mornings. And that that's another little story I think is is kind of interesting because I had to teach in the morning during the regular session, not the summer, but the regular session. I had to teach in the morning and be in the be in my office by nine or no later than 9.30. So it meant the students had to come at 8. Well, they weren't happy. And, and for the most part, you would have to recall, probably anybody listening to this, most canon law students don't think they're ever going to need consecrated life for as long as they're a canon lawyer, except the religious. And that was the class they had at 8 o'clock in the morning. But anyway, it was a wonderful experience. And I'm, I'm still very close to many of those students. Um, we shared, we shared, we were the only ones around, um, and we shared a time that was, uh, it was special, uh, I think, for, for both of us. So that, that was the sort of the first part of my canonical experience were, were in those years. Sister Sharon, you mentioned not those folks who think they didn't need religious law. I was in that category and then went on to... <laughs> practice in that field for about 12 years, but another area of law was the penal law that people didn't think was a necessary uh, area of the law to study until probably 2001 for many. So what what other experiences, what other ministries then did that lead you into? Okay, that's a good question because after I left the conference, um, I did consulting work for a few years and it was pretty general around any any topic, and that's one of the things I 
I like about um, what my ministries have been. I've, I've had ministries that have allowed me to integrate the whole code so that it's not, it's, you don't specialize in any particular area because there's so much that it needs to be integrated. You need to know every piece of it. And, and just a quick side comment is I've been talking to some people who are interested in studying canon law, but they only want to focus on this little section. And I said, that's not really, it's not possible, but it's not good either because you can't faithfully address one section without having the integration of the whole. But anyway, so after the, I did some, uh, consulting work for a few years, I uh, became the CLSA executive coordinator. And that was a, uh, it was a very, it was a very valuable experience for me. It, I was there for six years. And when I started, there was a lot that we had to do to kind of bring the society up to par in a number of areas. Um, one, one being uh, uh, the website. Um, so one of the advantages I had, I had students work, uh, CLSA students, Canon Law students, I'm sorry, Canon Law students working with me from the first day I started. Um, and they helped create what we needed on a website and they were they were really wonderful in that um so that was a, a you know an amazing thing when we were able to to launch uh your membership which we did use i think faithfully for many years but in addition to that we were able at that time to identify a number of areas that needed work like we we set up the publication task force and the report that uh, was developed from that is still useful today. The one that I think is still very useful is the Future Initiatives um, pr um, Project. When you look at what the recommendations are, we can still address some of those and they still need to be addressed. Um, the CLSA database, which took many years to get started, but is a valuable resource at this point. Um, and it was, you know, it was really through a, a very small staff, which is a the society has also had, um, but incorporating the students into it as much as possible. In the latter years, it was harder to get them to work on any regular basis. But in the beginning, they were they were the staff with me um, until we could get, you know, other other staff persons. So it was a great experience, and then uh, that led me to where I am now with the Resource Center for Religious Institutes again an area that's dear to my heart, and it is perhaps the hardest transition for me was that it is a single, well, it's mainly a single area of the law, but very related to other parts of the code with temporal goods, with governance, with relationship to diocese, bishops, all that. But it, it's a more narrow area than I was, I was familiar with. And I think what you mentioned on about the penal law I think that's, that's been the history of many of us until penal law became a requirement as a course. It wasn't, and in the early, well, at least when I was a student, it wasn't. But you know, with with religious now and and with clergy, there's so much that we have to keep up with um, in penal law that is that is beyond what the code intended. And I think that's the challenge for the society. It's the challenge for canon lawyers today and the challenge for the church as a whole. Now, you, several things that you've mentioned 
obviously show that you are very connected to the Canon Law Society of America. I believe in the rule of law citation, Monsignor Supar mentioned that you have been a member since uh, 1984, but you were on the board. You were vice president, you were president, and, and welcomed the new canonists in at one of those conventions, my earliest convention, so, and, and as executive coordinator. So did you, did you see a difference between being executive coordinator compared to being on the bog? What was that like? Oh, oh yes. Very, very, very different. Very different. Uh, you know, I think the bog, I mean, it took me, when I was first elected to the bog, I, I, I was like, I didn't know exactly what to do. I was... You know, I thought I'd be quiet for a couple of meetings and then see what see what was happening, and and that was it was a very good experience to, to get to learn about the society, but I also you know I also realized when I was executive coordinator that the executive coordinator knows the day to day work more thoroughly than the bog does and ever will because you know what comes you know what comes across the desk you know what comes across the emails you know what comes across the telephone calls. And you have a good sense of what are the needs out there and what do many of our members look for. And I think a major role of the executive coordinator is to help the board become aware of that so that their decisions reflect as best they can what the input of the membership is. And I think that's a challenge, but it's, a, it's something that I think does make a difference. Our listeners will be able to hear you read your rule of law response in a in another podcast that we will post alongside this one. What can you recall? I, I remember well because you had just started working at RCRI where I work. And when it came time, I didn't know you had kept it a secret. So it was a surprise when they started reading the citation. And I was thinking, that's Sister Sharon. So what was going through your mind? You had to keep it a secret from January, I assume, when you were notified until that night. Tell us about when you first found out you were elected. Well, Michael Sukar called me and um, after their January board meeting, and I, I was I was really surprised. I was very touched because he was one of my students. We're we're good friends, and I I was just touched that I thought, gosh, did I know this 20 years ago when I was teaching Michael that this would be the kind of thing that would happen? So I I was really. I was overwhelmed, and then, of course, the, the, the scariest thing is preparing your comment and, and what you're going to say and figuring out, you know, what, what reflects your feelings of having received the honor and what message can you send to others. And so that was, that was part of what I went through over the, those nine months or ten months. But that night, oh, I was scared to death. Plus, I had to give a talk at that convention, and I was, I was really nervous. So the people that I was sitting with, they had no idea. I kept my head down, <laughs> totally down. I wasn't even looking up. And then I heard someone at the next table say what you just said. Oh, that must be Sharon. And but it was a, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And to share it with all the other all the other role of law recipients who were there, um, it, that that was a special time at the end to do that. And to have Michael be the one to write the citation and to read it for me was also very special. I think it's very important for for women as canonists. Um, you were the fifth woman. So do you think that your role of law response that you gave that night is still pretty applicable today? Well, I do. I do. I th you know, if we look at diversity in the church in the various ways that I was able to identify and through my own ministry, I think today we have much more of a diversity and, and division. 
instead of diversity and unity. So I think it is very applicable, and, and the more we can, we can talk about um, things like encounter and, and dialogue and understanding other people's perspectives, not necessarily agreeing with them, but understanding them is really very important. And I think for new canonists, that's a very critical thing because when you're dealing with the law, you're going to have people that agree with it and people that don't agree with it. But I think it's, you know, I always think of when, when somebody asks me, should I study this? Should I go into studying canon law? I always say, if you can answer why, why do you want to study canon law? Then I think that will make a difference on the kind of canon lawyer you would be. And if you can choose it or learn to learn to accept the choice that was given to you, I think like many of us, you'll come to love the law and be energized by the law. Because the joy that comes from helping a person understand better the law, which is there to protect them and is a friend, not a foe, and apply it in a way that is going to be beneficial to, to people. I think there's few other gifts that are as amazing. Can you speak briefly to the issue of why it's important for canonists in the field to submit advisory opinions to that annual publication? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, there's there's several reasons. I think one reason is um, to share your insights, to begin to begin to take uh, put, put into writing your thinking and even to have it tested by others. I, I remember when Tom Green was at CUA, he helped some of the students write an advisory opinion because he thought they needed the practice of being able to submit their own thinking to a public audience of canon lawyers. So I would encourage any of them. And I always say, one example is many of many canon lawyers who are working in dioceses, your bishops will say, you know, here's a situation that's come in. I, I would like you to help me respond to it. Can you write something for me? will take that and develop it into a more of a, a one and a half page. That's all it has to be. Advisory opinion on a question that you got asked. I mean, that sounds simple and maybe it's oversimplified, but it really it really is important, even if there are questions that have been answered in previous advisory opinions, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, times have changed. The circumstances are different. The details are different. So I would encourage um, canon lawyers to submit those. Thank you. That's very helpful as we move forward. And I was one of those and you are the one who a number of years ago gave me a question. So I appreciate that myself. So what other what final words do you have then for our CLSA listeners before we uh, before we end this podcast, Mr. Sharon? Well, I, I just I you know, I think I go back to what I, I was just saying a little while ago is that the more you're involved with canon law and practice it, if you want to use that word, I think the more you see the the possibilities of what law can do, what we can learn from it, what it can teach us, but also how we can help people. I just I find that, you know, the most interesting dynamic when you're speaking to a group who, first of all, may resent having a canon lawyer speak to them or be um, not only hesitant, but just wonder what you have to say to me. And but in the long run, there's there's so many parts of the law 
that can be helpful to people. And I, I just think it's there to protect you. And if people know that, that's a real, real gift that the law gives us and that canon lawyers can be to other people. I'm just grateful for the opportunities I've had. They've been diverse and I wouldn't trade any of them for any of those experiences. And I look forward to more <laughs> ahead of me. <laughs> And I'm sure you will do well in any other future chapters that you have, uh, have a hand in. So thank you, Sister Sharon, for being with us today. We are very uh, grateful to hear from you. And, and this podcast will uh, live on as part of your legacy. We're very happy that you were able to join us today. So thanks for being with us. Thanks, Donna. I appreciate it. I'm grateful. Mm-hmm.